I wanted to just kind of point out a few references for you. I think there's a slide. Um, these are a few books that I have been reading and really enjoyed and would kind of like kind of offer them to you if you're interested. So Union with Christ, um, Rankin Wilburn, he was here um, in 2018. We were new to the church and I was not brave enough to come to a Bible conference yet. So I kind of hate that we missed it. But I think it was at one point on the website or a podcast or wherever you find those things. So if you could probably find it if you want to listen to him. And then um, The Hope of Glory is a neat little, um, it's almost like a devotional, short chapters, but um, he does a great job of explaining things that you might kind of have questions about throughout Colossians. That's a good one. And then Transformed, my husband and I saw at a conference not long ago. If you'll read the subtitle, God Renews Our Minds. Um, and he said, you need that. <laughs> uh, so I bought it and he was not wrong. Um, so it's good for things like anxious people. Um, I'm familiar with anxiety. We're friends. So let's think a little bit before we dive into tonight's passage about what we've learned so far. Okay, The first part of chapter 1, Paul, we know that Paul is writing from prison. We know that he got an update from Epaphras, whom he met in what town? Ephesus, remember? Epaphras from Epaphras. I'll never forget it, can't say it. But um, So he had not ever met the Colossian church, but he had heard about it from Epaphras and knew that they um, had believed in the gospel, that they were abounding in their love for one another, and that they were bearing fruit in their lives. And he's writing them, them this letter telling him that he is praying for them, praying that they would be filled with wisdom and knowledge and understanding in a section I like to call How to Pray for Your Friends. Um, and then what you might notice is that just like any letter, Colossians builds on itself. And so he moves from telling them that he's praying about praying for them and he's grateful for them into reminding them of what he knows is true and what they know is true, what is true about Jesus. So the last part of chapter 1, he is talking about Christ as the image of the invisible God that Christ is supreme over all of creation, that he holds it in the palm of his hand, that he's sufficient for everything we need to save and transform us. And then last week we learned that Paul is, has suffered as a minister. He's in prison as he's writing. He is struggling in prayer. It's almost like to me like he's pleading with God and pleading with the church in Colossians on their behalf. To, um, to hold fast to what they've learned in the face of some of the pressures that, that he's going to address next. Um, and the thing we saw in our passage last week, that he's pleading with them to hold on to the truth, which is this glorious mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, I have two party tricks, and you'll never invite me to a party once I tell you this. So one is... Um, only a certain demographic is going to know. Um, when I was in college, I sat on a board evening in my dorm room and learned all the words to the song Hook by Blues Traveler. Does anybody know that song? I can do it. Thank you. Um, lots and lots of words in that song. And then I, in the sixth grade, when we had to learn the list of prepositions for a test, I set it to music. And I can still sing the list of prepositions today. Um, See my agent for bookings. <laughs> uh, okay, so what is a preposition? This is kind of important. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. 
All right, so a preposition is a word or a group of words used before a noun or a pronoun. Teachers don't get mad if I mess it up. But they show things like location or relationship, okay? So I have a visual aid for you. So these are words like in or on. So here's Wilbur the pig, and he's holding a sign that says, we'll work as food. And the caption says, due to his grammar mistake, Wilbur found a position. It just wasn't the one he wanted. So there's your illustration. Uh, and he's like a drum set. So when Paul talks about our relationship to Christ, he doesn't say that we are at Christ. You know, he says we are in him. And he says in Christ something like 160 times in his writings. They don't always mean the same thing, I will say that, but 160 times in Christ or in him. And I don't know how many times he references Christ in us. Don't know that number, but we know it's a lot if you've read Paul's writings. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, that our lives are united with Christ and all that that means. Um, so Paul knows that the church is facing some pressures, and he's writing them not only to remind them of the truth that they are united to Christ, but he's writing to warn them about these pressures that they need to resist and, and what they, how they can do that, okay? So let's turn to Colossians 2, and I think I'll just read the whole passage, if that's okay with you, the 6 through 23 and then we'll kind of go back and revisit different parts of it together. All right, Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, 
according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, what's the first word in that passage? Therefore. And we've learned, if you've done Bible study for a length of time, you know, if you see therefore, you're supposed to ask what it's there for. Um, In some versions, that first word is so. Um, And I promise we're not going to talk about every single individual word. But this one's important because Paul, um, anytime Paul gives instruction about what we ought to do, it is always firmly established in who we are first and what's true about Christ. So that therefore is saying, now that we've established that you are in Christ, um, now let's talk about what you need to do. And so it makes me think, how often do we just get that backwards? How often do we think we have to figure out some kind of magic formula to get in good with God and to be pleasing in a way to earn his favor? Um, So Paul is reminding him that we already have everything we need because of our union with Christ. Because, and he's going to explain that in even greater detail, um, as we just read. You might want to keep, if you have a Bible, you might want to keep it open, because we're going to skip around just a tad. Um, so I won't reread each time we skip. But So based on the fact, though, that um, we are united with Christ, then Paul says, so then walk in him. And he gives us some information about how we are to walk in him. What are the like factors in it? So the New American Standard helps with that a little bit. Let me read to you what it says. It says, Therefore, as you have received, heard, and believed Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So, what does it mean to walk? I googled it. And it means to tread all around. Um, It means that we look at where we plant our feet. We look at the stability of our path. Um, Unless you're clumsy, you may not. Um, But the rest of these verses tell us, though, what is the stability in which we are walking? What is our path? Um, David Strain at First Pres in Jackson preached a great sermon on this, and he talks about how... um, This verse uses a number of metaphors to explain um, the basis for our walking. So first of all, we saw having been firmly rooted. So this would be an agricultural metaphor. So, and notice that it says having been, this is something that's already been done. Um, Our roots are already established in Christ. And it means that like a tree, we get our spiritual nourishment from the source, the source being Jesus. And that implies security, doesn't it? Um, I was on the coast a couple weeks ago for the first time in a really long time, the coast of Mississippi. I'd been to Florida, but... um, And I was struck by some of the really big trees that were standing. And it occurred to me, Hurricane Katrina was, what, 18 years ago, 17 years ago? Um, Those giant trees are way older than Hurricane Katrina. I thought the reason they're still standing, you know, all the buildings were new um, within, since the last, in the last 17 years, but the trees were still standing because their roots were so deeply embedded that even when that massive storm came, they were able to withstand it. So when we are rooted in Christ, when trials come, 
um, we're able to be firm even when we feel weak. I mean, I'm sure those trees took a beating. Um, but we're able to stay strong and continue to walk in Him. Um, no matter how uncertain life seems, being rooted in Jesus means that my soul is planted firmly in His unchanging grace. It means that my hope is grounded in His goodness, um, and that is mine and yours identity in Christ. That's our security. So whatever happens, we can be certain that we have been rooted in Him. And, you know, there are other places in Scripture where agricultural metaphors are used, right? If you think about it, it starts kind of popping up. They're kind of all over the place. Um, we talked about it at the women's retreat a few weeks ago. In John 15, um, being in the vine, um, and that there's, kind of, there's an indicative and an imperative component to being rooted or united or abiding in Christ, which is that it is a fact. That's the indicative part. And the imperative part is that we are to continue on abiding. We're to remain in him. So from the rooted place then we remain, one of the ways we remain is by receiving nourishment from his word like we're doing tonight. Um, and then you think about Psalm 1-1 too. Um, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of God. He meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and the leaves do not wither. The second kind of metaphor he uses, now being built up in him, that's an architectural metaphor. So being built up, that's stated in kind of like an active tense, right? Like a present, it's actively happening. You are being built up. Um, but it's also kind of a passive voice. You are being built up. You're not building yourself up. So it kind of means that we don't have anything to do with it. We are being built up. Um, it means that God is the actor in that building up. It's being done to us and in us on an ongoing basis. You are being built up. 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that his spirit dwells in you? We are all fixer-uppers. Um, we're all a whole mess of a renovation project. And I think some of you would sit and say, oh, kind of more so than probably her. Um, sometimes walls have to be knocked down and, and, or need to be like wallpaper stripped. Have you ever stripped wallpaper? It's painful stuff. That's kind of like what God is doing in our hearts as he's building us up. Sometimes it just feels like every day is demo day. Um, and, but we can rest assured, God's promise is that he's going to finish the good work that he started in you. Um, and then the next metaphor is legal, being established in your faith. So it's like guaranteeing a legal document. It's like, a, like an adoption, for example. God has bound himself to us in Jesus, and he sealed it with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So all three of these, being rooted, built up, established, are passive, aren't they? It's kind of what God is doing, and therefore we can walk in the assurance of that. We're not rooting, establishing, and building up ourselves. Um, we're just called to walk in it, walk in the security of it. The legal record of our debt is paid, and we're established as righteous before God and assured that his promises are true. Um, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that interesting? Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Um, I feel like we could just study that forever and ever and ever, and never quite, you know, like, just forever and ever, figure out what that means. Um, so the, the last piece of that verse is overflowing with gratitude or abounding in thanksgiving. So this is just an outward expression of all that we have in Christ. And so if you think about all the things that, that just those three, the rooted, established, and built up kind of prompts you to, think, to be thankful for, for Jesus, for our security in him, um, for our new heart, for God's presence and the gift of the seal of the Holy Spirit. Gratitude keeps our feet planted in reliance and trust in God's sufficiency and reminds us that he is our true source. So the next, I, I started to rearrange this during my lunch break today and almost lost half of what I had typed. And so I was like, I'm just going to leave it like it is. So I want us to think about the rest of this chapter like cheese and crackers, okay? So, the, you know, cheese on top of a cracker. Each time he speaks in the next little section there, it's like, here's a warning, the cheese, and the cracker is um, like the, the argument, the truth, the truth that like supports the warning, okay? It's goofy, but it helps, right? So we're just gonna talk about the cheese first and then we're gonna come back and talk about the crackers, okay? All right, so um, there are things that Paul is now coming in and saying, I want to make you aware of these things. You need to be on the lookout for um, as believers being rooted and these are the things that are gonna be like p potential threats to you in your faith. So the first thing he warns them about um, is in verse 8, the philosophies and empty deceit. Um, I may or may not have just Googled a second ago uh, what this was, because I never quite got my head wrapped around what the philosophies were in that time. Um, but what I do know is this. Um, I learned a big word, sophistry. My husband was impressed. What it meant was that they were taking some Jewish truths and they were distorting them intentionally to deceive people. I don't know how they were doing that, um, but it was empty because it doesn't hold up to the truth of the gospel, but it was close enough that it could be deceptive. Um, and, I, and I think about it like, and then once you have been deceived, you don't know that you're deceiving the next person. How tricky is that? Um, so he's warning them. You know, and a lot of the Jews wanted to make Jesus smaller. They were threatened by him. And so they denied the resurrection. Um, and so maybe that could have a little bit of something to do with what was going on then. Um, and you know, God's grace provided in Christ was then and still is a threat um, to some of us because it really does undermine our determination to want to justify ourselves. Um, and so his warning is that we wouldn't be taken captive by it or seduced by it. So let's think about what are some of the ways that we might be taken captive by some deceptive philosophies today. Um, one thing that comes to mind is that our culture has kind of um, distorted truth to the extent that we kind of believe that it's everybody's right to define what's true for them and to live in your truth, to speak your truth. Um, and that's rooted in deception because there, there is truth. We know that with a capital T, right? Or like, um, 
even the temptation to put our trust in what we do or um, what we have or what people think about us, that's pretty deceptive, isn't it? We can get caught up in that pretty quick. Or we hear little quips, like um, one of my friends in college had this written on her mirror in her bathroom, God helps those who help themselves. That's not grounded in truth, is it? Um, And Paul isn't saying that all philosophy is bad. I made a C in philosophy in college. It felt real bad when I was in there. I'm convinced the only reason I made a C is because I was just funny. Um, There was a dude who read Nietzsche for fun in that class, and he hated me. Um, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, I've grown a little bit. So he's not, Paul isn't saying that all philosophy is bad. I mean, he's, you know, he's not saying don't question the meaning of life. Don't examine, you know, your theological questions or doubts. Um, He is warning them against buying into teaching that points to anything other than Christ for life and godliness. That's what he's warning them against. Anything that's going to pull you away from Jesus. That's what he's, that's what he's looking at. And then in verses 16 to 18, He talks about legalism and a few other things we'll get to next, but 16 is where we see legalism. So, um, you know, a lot of us were raised with an unhealthy fear of falling short. My Southern Baptist friends in here, I know not all Southern Baptists, but I see you. Um, It's so much, we, we we had such a fear of it that we became like bound up in a whole bunch of rules. Um, trying to keep a bunch of rules to get in good with God. Um, also, along with that, though, seeking to judge and disqualify other people, which is one of the things that Paul mentioned, uh, by saying that if they didn't follow these rules, then their faith wasn't genuine. Um, I had a friend tell me this week, actually, that she has such a hard time comprehending how Jesus could forgive her that she finds herself just praying over and over have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. She's just kind of stuck in it because she can't get her head wrapped around it. If she told me to tell you her name is Beth, if you would like to pray for her. Um, I asked her if I could say that. She's like, tell them who I am. Um, So in in the, the time of the church in Colossae, probably what was happening is that there were some who were really pushing to hold on to things like food laws, Um, like clean and unclean animals, or like the feasts that were established in Leviticus. That's where you see the stuff about the new moon there. Um, The purification laws that made them um, able to enter the temple. But those things were always, Hebrews 10, 1, were always a shadow of what was to come. That Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that. The substance of all of that belongs to Christ. And so any effort to keep trying to do all that stuff is just an effort to make yourself feel better. That's what Paul is essentially telling them. Philippians 3, 9. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. And y'all know Romans 8, 1. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mamas in the room. Think about how we might seek to disqualify one another to make ourselves feel better. Um, this over, I think it was over the weekend, Jen Wilkin came under a little bit of attack, if y'all follow her on Instagram. Um, she talked about public school and private school, and her words got picked apart, and she had to revisit it. I couldn't tell that she had said anything that I thought was wrong. She just got picked apart. 
um, because we, you know, have a tendency to ju pass judgment on each other for what we choose to do, even with things like educating our children. Um, I, have a, I have bigger kids, and so one of my teenagers, you will all know which one if you know them, has a little edgy style. <laughs> Y'all do know her, don't you? She's so cute. She's a little edgy. And I have to admit, 10 years ago, I would have passed judgment on me, her mama, for her edgy style. 100% I would have. Until I got to parent this autonomous little being who wants to choose herself, I got humbled by that. She's a great kid. She's just edgy. Don't we do that to each other, though? You know, Paul's teaching about grace and about how everything we need to be in the family of God is fulfilled in Jesus. It comes right up against our struggle for self-control. We want it so bad. For our tendency to want to manage our ego and self-promote or mask our shame, mask our self-loathing, gripe against it. Then he talks about Aestheticism, angel worship, and going on about visions. I'm just going to comment briefly on those. Okay, so asceticism was a form, a severe form of self-control. So in Greek culture, they viewed the body as inherently evil. And so they would do things to like um, punish the body, like deny um, physical needs or psychological desires, thinking that it would like help them attain some kind of spiritual ideal. And so it may be, uh, it's intensely focused on self, for sure. Um, so they would do things like um, celibacy or rejecting worldly goods or even condemning personal hygiene. Um, so I guess they thought that like being stinky and miserable was, was a good thing. Um, and then angel worship might have been on the, based on the beliefs that like angels helped God create the universe and so they were also worthy of some kind of um, worship like they had some kind of position of power over governing the universe. Um, or they may believe that God was so um, high up and unreachable that we needed angelic intermediaries to have access to him. And so they might pray to angels in hopes that they would appeal to God. Or maybe even believing that we could kind of conjure up angels to try to manipulate them to get what we want. So, um, and then going on about visions might have been that there were people claiming to have kind of this uh, spiritual superpower um, for having visions. And so they would try to maybe disqualify other people by saying that they, if they haven't had a similar experience, they weren't really, their faith wasn't real. That's where I was going to put the on Wednesdays we wear pink reference. I knew that would happen. Um, that's why I didn't include it. So, all right, so bottom line is, though, that the false teachers were fooled and that the false teachers were looking to fool God's people um, and, looking and, and trying to fool them into seeking spiritual security elsewhere and really looking to man's approval for their sense of security. That's kind of what it boils down to. And so there, there are pressures that um, we all tend to face to make us feel or, or look more Christian-y um, like more secure with God and then we add in man to it. We want to feel secure. And so with each of these truths, this is the crackers coming up. He, Paul gives them a basis. This is why you don't have to buy into these. All right, so this is going to be like the last part of uh, verse 8 into, and through verse 15. So first of all, we can reject the, any kind of deceptive philosophies because they're not according to Christ. 
That's the second part, I think, of um, verse 8, if I'm not mistaken. Christ is all the fullness of God. So any efforts to try to add anything to that is a lie. It's just a lie. It says the cross wasn't enough. Um, so we have to do the rest. And we know that's just not true. The one who made heaven and earth hold, holds it in the palm of his hand. He is in you and all you need. Second Peter 1.3, he has granted us all we need pertaining to life and godliness. I googled define all. Do you know what the definition of all is? All. <laughs> the sum total. The sum total of all you need. Um, verse 9 in this passage, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Did you notice it's kind of redundant? All the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, and you have been filled in him. If I try to fill my gas tank past full, it's just going to be a stinky, flammable mess on my pants and my shoes, right? Full is full, all the fullness. Jesus is everything that God has to say, and he is in you. There's no fuller than full. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. Um, and then we have a basis for not being deceived or judged or disqualified because Christ has finished it. Um, and so there are a bunch of statements in verses 11 through 14 that describe what that means, the finished work of Christ. So first of all, Paul talks about we were uncircumcised and now circumcised. So we've seen elsewhere in Scripture that circumcision was the, the mark um, of a token or seal of God's covenant with Abraham. When he made his covenant with Abraham, his instruction was that all the, the male children would be circumcised. Um, now, though, it signifies an inward reality. Um, Romans 8, 28, 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So some of these false teachers were probably saying that you needed to, we needed to continue the practice of circumcision. And Paul is saying, no, no. The circumcision that you have is of the heart, that it is made without hands, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, because your sinful flesh was surgically removed on the cross, and that's done. Then secondly, in verse 12 and 13, he talks about being buried and raised and dead and now alive. I don't want you to think I'm skipping over the part about baptism. I just didn't have time. Um, but if it's confusing to you, then read about it, definitely. Um, explore it. It's good to know. So what happened here, buried, raised, dead, alive, is that the believer shared in Christ's death. So the judgment of God fell on Christ, and in him, those of us who are in him, died too. So confusing. Um, the old, unrepentant, wrong you was condemned and finally sentenced on the cross, and Jesus paid the penalty for it and in Christ, raised. So we were born dead, and dead people can't make themselves not dead. Um, there's no power to do that, right? So by faith we know it's God's powerful working to bring us to life, not back to life, but to life at all, spiritually. Um, and that's done in Him, in Christ, right? 
So now death is over as a biological fact because we're going to live eternally with him. It's not, I'm sorry, it's not over as a biological fact. But in terms of being the wages of sin for believers, it's over. That's done. And then he says in verse 14 that we were legally in debt and now the debt has been paid. So 2,000 years ago, all of my sin was condemned on Jesus um, because I'm in him. So if you took your sin, past, present, future, known to you, not known to you, and had some kind of document with all of it on there, it would be a zillion pages long, and nailed it to the cross, that's, kind of, that's what happened. Um, in 1999, there was a movie called Double Jeopardy. Has anybody seen this movie? It's great, isn't it? It was when Ashley Judd was so cute. Ashley Judd is married to this rich guy, and he frames her for his death um, and so that he can get all the money. So he fakes his death. She gets prosecuted for it. While she's in prison, she finds out <clears throat> that he's actually not dead because she's on the phone with her son, and he goes, Daddy, when he walks in the door. So she proceeds to figure out how to manipulate the system to get on parole, and then she tracks him down in New Orleans, and she kills him. Um, because of a rule called double jeopardy. You can't be prosecuted for the same crime twice. That's it. There's no double jeopardy. Um, it would, it, think about 1 John 1, 9. Okay? It says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Brian told me this, and I was like, Phew. it doesn't say that God is merciful enough to forgive your sins. It says he's faithful and just. Um, it would not be just of God to not forgive your sins because if you're in Christ, the penalty's paid. He's just faithful to do what he said he would do. So you're not a forgiven old you. You're a forgiven new you. How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a forgiven old you? I do. It's hard. The real you is new. Okay, and then I want us to look at verse 18 together. I might even actually read it again, if that's okay. Um, let me see. Yeah. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and all that stuff. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Why, he said. Right? Where's the why? I have to do this every time. Where's the why, y'all? Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to its regulations? Why? Why do we want to be puffed up? I have another visual image for you illustration. also brought one with me. We, Meg and I were in Walmart the other day, and um, she picked this up, and she's like, Mom, you should buy this because it looks like you. <laughs> I was like, eh. and then a couple days later, I was like, hey, um, can we go to Walmart because I need to buy that puffer fish that you picked up and said, oh, I mean. Okay. Things about, this has become my greatest therapy tool, too, by the way. All my clients have seen it in the last couple weeks. Did you know that a puffer fish can inflate itself to twice its regular size, which eliminates all of the predators in the ocean except for sharks? Did you know that? 
And did you know that a pufferfish, these little spikes, there are lots of species that they don't all have spikes, but the ones who do, their little spikes have um, poison on them that are 1,200 times more powerful than cyanide. Did you know that? Isn't that the image that comes up when now? Now it does. Now it will forever. Why do you keep puffing yourself up? Why do puffer fish puff up? It's a defense because they feel threatened, right? Why do we puff ourselves up? Because we feel threatened. Um, because we think of ourselves as a forgiven old me. And we're scared and we're shame-filled and we're anxious. And we want to have, create for ourselves defenses because we feel vulnerable, because we seek to judge and disqualify each other. Um, and, we, and we look for things that have an appearance of wisdom, but they don't hold any water. And then that becomes our own source of insecurity because then our sense of well-being only comes from trying to disqualify other people and judge other people and puff ourselves up. It's exhausting. It's chronic insecurity that you get. And then you're intensely focused on yourself, too, when you're in that puffed-up place. No wonder we're depressed and anxious people. And Paul's answer to this, I'm done after this, is hold fast to the head. If you're holding on to Jesus, he is the head of the body. If you're holding on to Jesus by one, by one hand, by faith, with one hand, and you're holding on to all the things that puff you up with the other hand, you're unstable in all your ways, like James says. You're rooted, you're established, you're being built up. You're a forgiven new you. You're made alive. You don't have to do all that. Um, here's something that Rankin Wilburn says. I'll close with this, okay? To be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempts to find or craft an acceptable identity or your tireless works to manage your own reputation, those are over and done. You can rest in Christ. I hope your nervous system just heard that. I hope you felt, I hope you did. Your efforts, frantic attempts to craft or find an acceptable identity or your tireless works to manage your own reputation, these are over and done. You can rest in Christ. You don't have to be intimidated by anyone ever. Who are you? You are in Christ. And you no longer need to fear judgment of God. 1 John 4.18 says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. When God looks at you, he sees you hidden in Christ. This is freedom. This is confidence. And I would add, this is our security. So let's pray, okay? Oh, Father, we thank you for this truth. And would you... Um, would you reveal to us um, just all that it means for us? Would you point out places in our lives where we function in a state of defensiveness or, or we try to posture, um, even when it's trying to posture in relationship to you? Would you just remind us, um, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that we are secure, we're rooted, that you are doing your work in us for our good and for your pleasure. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.